thank you for coming here today. It's me, Linda Sage, on Learning From Life. One thing I can promise you, there'll be people to meet over the airways here you'll never forget. Some, as long as you live. Let's just say, most have had what could be termed as an interesting life. It's not what happens, it's how you deal with it. And one line from any of them could change the way you deal with things forever. They'll be landing from all parts of the planet, all ages, backgrounds and experiences. Telling the truth of how it was and how they manage things may just help you miss a rock or two along your road too. And welcome back. I'm Linda Sackage and this is Learning From Life. I know we say every week I have amazing guests and this week is absolutely no different. I'm very lucky to have with me a fantastic guy and he's a writer and he's a broadcaster and he's an entrepreneur and oh so many different hats but Basically, he is one of the most genuine, nice guys I have really ever met. He's very open, very honest, and his story just lights up a room. So, uh, Martin Morrison, thank you so much for being with me. Oh, hello, Linda. Thank you very much for having me and, um, you know, for such uh, touching words. Um, that You know, it means a lot to me what you said there. Thank you very much, and I'm glad that you see me that way. Well, you are one of the guys that no matter what, if somebody reaches out, you're always there. You always try and do your best for other people. And uh, no matter what happens, and life not being uh, fair or perhaps kind to you in lots of ways, but you're there, you bounce along and you come back again. Well, we've all got to help each other, Linda. That's the way I see it. What goes around comes around and all that. Very, very true. So where do you want to start? You've got so many stories. So where would you like to focus? Well, it's it's interesting you say that because, um, you know, as, as you know, I'm writing a book at the moment and this is causing me to reflect on many aspects of my life. Um, and although the main thrust of the book is about shedding, it's about killing the past, it's about getting rid of negative programmes and the deep-rooted memories and experiences that we've got and voices we've got embedded within us that can sometimes tell us we're not good enough. It's about killing those things. There are many other aspects of my story that I've somehow got to weave in to that bigger purpose. So looking at learning from life, um, I'm going to go back to the earliest lesson that I got from life. And the earliest lesson that I got from life is that what you are, who you are, and what you're capable of has got nothing at all to do with what anybody else tells you or what anybody else teaches you. I learned at around the age of 10 that um, I was gifted with music and it didn't matter. Nobody had taught me this. Let me give you the story very briefly, Linda. As you know, um, I grew up in, in emotional and physical abuse. Um, I love my late father. He, he wasn't an evil man, but, you know, he had his weaknesses. And unfortunately, um, I was marginalised. I was treated different than, differently than my, my other six siblings. And my dad used to tell me all the time that I was the world's worst. Now, um, around the age of 10, I was given uh, an acoustic guitar. And my eldest sister taught me a few basic chords. 
and a few of us from the family, myself and two of my sisters, I remember, we used to go, we were all Catholics, we used to go to the local church and we were singing these these hymns with, with guitar and we called it the folk group. And I'll never forget the day. I was sat there with, you know, my sisters and probably about three other people and then a choir master called Kath. And I decided, because I could be a little bit of a clown, that I was going to take the mickey out of choir boys. So um, I decided to sing, Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder, a song made famous by the great king himself, Elvis Presley. Mm -hmm. I decided to sing that as a choir boy. So the next thing you know, Kath stops everybody. Who, who was doing that? Who was doing that, that like high voice? So I'm thinking, you know, it was a safe enough environment for me, uh, Linda. It wasn't like I was in school, but I, I did think, you know, I've been a bit naughty. I uh, sheepishly put my hand up and I was like, I, I, I'm sorry, it was me. And what I'm going to say now, it's going to sound like a film script. It's going to sound like one of those corny American films, but it's the absolute truth. She says, will you do it again? And I said, yeah, no problem. So I, I did it again. I sang this song. And she says, do you have any idea how extraordinary your singing voice is? And I didn't know what hit me. I'm like, no. Um, although retrospectively, I've got to be honest, both my mom and my dad had told me, despite the abuse, they had both told me that I could sing. But I just used to think that this was the rare occasion when my dad was being nice, to be honest with you. I, I, I didn't take it seriously. I thought that other people couldn't be bothered singing or were shy or didn't want to feel self-conscious. So anyway, the next thing you know, I'm shipped off to the Liverpool Catholic Cathedral, which is now known as the Metropolitan Cathedral. It's very distinctive. It's shaped like a wigwam, very distinctive looking building. Yeah. As you know, we've got two cathedrals in Liverpool, the Catholic one and the, and the uh, Protestant one. Yeah. So I went to the Catholic one and I was put in front of these two guys, Philip and Terence Duffy, two brothers. And they basically put me through my paces with a musical IQ test. They were playing chords on the piano and saying, we want you to hum what notes you can hear. Um, and then they were like, okay, complete this sequence. Can you sing another song? A song, Morning Is Broken. And they told me, quite bluntly, they said, your musical ability is off the scale. And we're going to be honest with you, Martin. They said, we never usually taken on a choir boy over the age of five because the amount of work required to understand how to read music and work with us, we need to take them on that age. But we would be willing to take a chance on you and we'll take you on. You'll be the only ever person to ever come in at like 10. Wow. Well, as a matter of fact, Linda, I would have been 11 because I was in the last school, the last year of junior school and they said, the only way that you can join our choir is if you go to that school over there, which was St. Edward's College. Now, St. Edward's College, up until 1980, I think it was, yeah, up until 1980, was the best school you could get into on the 11 plus um, and although I did the 11 plus in 1981, St. Edwards had now become fully private. So the only people in that school were the ones who paid. Mm. 
But they had this scheme called the Assisted Places Scheme run by the government. And it would mean having to do three exams. Maths, English and Verbal Reasoning and the 11 plus. And you know what? I was absolutely determined to get in that choir. So I used to do mock exams every evening. This is at the age of 10, off my own back. And uh, I got into that school. So this kid that was the world's worst ended up in the best school in the Northwest and, and the first ever 11-year-old to join up the Liverpool Cathedral Choir. And that was a talent that was given to me by the universe, by God. And I don't want anybody to mishear what I'm saying here or misinterpret. This is not about how great I am. It's about how great you are, how great everybody is, because I've dealt with children and adults over the years, teaching and helping them through mindfulness. I've never met a single person that wasn't extraordinary, that didn't have multiple talents. But if you don't try to find them, if you don't experiment, if you don't allow yourself to go with the flow, with that childlike nature of humming, of trying to climb that wall, of running along that path, you won't discover your truth, so you won't be able to express it. It's that simple. And, and an awful lot of people uh, do find things that they, they excel at, but then they talk themselves out of it. Yes, um, the, the, the talking themselves out of it, you know what, it's nice when you can tell a story chronologically, but I'm going to have to jump back, I'm going to have to jump ahead. Um, I'm going to have to jump ahead by uh, 40 years from that story. No, 30 years. So my life was convoluted, right? There was lots of, there was lots of turns. I will actually, I will give you a, a very, as quick a summary as I can. So I, I, that wasn't the only talent that I discovered as a teen, okay? I discovered other talents, particularly with martial arts weapons and, and performance art. I discovered meditation and martial arts, meditation and my performance art training really kept me grounded through what was pretty much the cold war of my teens. Because by the age of 12, I'd fought back against my dad and that had sort of catalyzed my mother into action and she had been watching what had been going on I think unsure what to do maybe waiting to see if I was going to fight back first but when I did that was it she jumped the board and, and she threatened my dad with divorce which um, I've got a, a one-liner about that normally the only time that anybody could threaten divorce in Liverpool without absolute disgrace was if their spouse was a Manchester United supporter, then <laughs> then it would be acceptable. Um, so it was a big thing to do. Um, at the age of 21, having had a complete and utter breakdown, I'm back at ground zero, as it were, and discovering who I am without the history, without the identity of Martin Morrison. He was gone something else something more cosmic something more unconditioned was in charge whoever i'd been when i was first born was in charge but i got slapped right back down because you know you can't you can't live your life that way you have to have an identity you have to have a way of engaging with the outside world 
So your identity, if you like, is like your operating system. It's like your new version of Windows 10 or, or what is it? iPhone uses the other one, right? I, iOS. So, you know, I was rebuilding myself from scratch. And then I had an argument with my dad. I'd been away in Spain for three months and I come back and my dad picked this argument with me. And uh, it was about two o'clock in the morning and I threatened him. And within, I would say, yeah, it was probably within a minute of me threatening him. He took his last breath and uh, he, he had a heart attack. So I had to go upstairs. My mother was a, a nurse, but I don't think she'd done first aid. And anyway, her husband was dying on the bed and it was a big shock. So I had to go in the room and I spent about 20 minutes trying to resuscitate him. Um, it must have been about an hour and a half, maybe two hours later in the hospital, they confirmed what I already knew, that he was dead. Mm. So that was an incredibly profound moment for me because I wish I could turn around and say to you, I was devastated, it was a terrible thing and... I've got to be honest with you, there was a side of me that felt victorious, that felt empowered, that felt invincible, because this man had been a thorn in my side all my life, and even now he picked a fight with me and he'd ended up dying and I was still here. But obviously I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a caveat there by saying that, you know, I felt extremely guilty for feeling that way. I felt very sad that I hadn't been able to bring him back. I felt as though I'd, you know, I'd let him down by not being able to bring him back. I felt guilty as though I'd killed him because, you know, our arguments had prompted his heart attack. There was so many complex emotions that I felt. And I dealt with that over the next few years in my 20s with uh, more alcohol abuse, marijuana abuse, until I started to reach a place, uh, it was actually Alcoholics Anonymous to help me. Um, I had to face up to myself. And I faced up to the fact that my dad probably would have died anyway. Well, he would have died anyway. There was nothing I could have done to have brought him back when he had that heart attack. The heart attack was inevitable because he'd stopped taking his medication. Uh, he, he was the one who brought the conflict to me. I would never have followed through on the threat, by the way. That's the other thing. Um, and, and, and ultimately, I discovered that I was going to have to forgive him as well. Because if I didn't forgive him and if I didn't let... So I had to forgive him for what happened, you know, in my childhood. If I didn't learn to love him, I was not going to be loving myself either. I was going to be hating 50% of my genetics. So you'd think after all that work that I was putting all, you know, that I was putting myself through, that I'd be okay. You know, by the age of 30, I'd met my soon-to-be wife. Um, at that time, I mean, I, you know, I had a child, I had a house and a car, and I was doing well in the world of advertising. So everything seemed to be great, except it wasn't, Linda. It wasn't. The marriage broke down very quickly. So by 2003, I was on my backside, single father of one with one on the way. My career was going nowhere. Um, and it just felt like every time I tried to take off, 
I couldn't get escape velocity. I kept on getting sucked back into this black hole of dissatisfaction, mediocrity, and just constantly things going wrong. And you sit there and you think, what am I doing wrong? Why, why am I not doing better? By 2005, and I'm giving you a very long answer here, but I'm going to get to the <laughs> juice. By 2005, I'm looking at all my skills. I'm looking at what I've learned. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous and becoming sober had really helped me to think more clearly about who I was, what I brought to the table, what I could be doing. And I had all these big plans and big visions. But you know what? I wasn't doing them. They were there, but something inside me was telling me I wasn't good enough, except I couldn't hear that. I just didn't have the courage to make the break. Um, I was, my relationships, I, I guess you could say I had relationship addiction. I, I did three years completely single after my divorce, and then it was like, you know, I, I think even then the drive to, to find somebody was really to, you know, I met a lady who had two children and I wanted to give my two kids other children to play with when they came to see me. That was something I was very aware of. So I met this lady. We had another child, Leon, who's now 13. But that relationship was disastrous as well. And it was just one after the other, these disastrous relationships, until I get to the age of 39, right? And this is shocking. My best friend in life has just lost their mother at 50 years of age through swine flu. So her mother's died. That was a shock. Obviously, her dad, who I very much saw as a father figure, to be honest with you, um, he's lost his wife. The two of them are grieving. I'm not even sure. We've probably been through the funeral at that stage. And all I could think about was me. Me, me, me. And how I couldn't get back with this woman in my life, Leon's mother. Mm -hmm. And it would have been a terrible relationship anyway, right? We weren't good for each other. She's a lovely lady, but we weren't good for each other. And all my conversations were revolving around what I needed. I was leaning on people at work, and I was leaning on my best friend and her dad. And her dad turns around to me one day, and he says, there's a Nigerian man, this, this fella, very distinctive accent. He turned around and he says to me, Martin, I don't think your father ever told you that he loved you. And you know something, as soon as he said that, the reaction told me everything I needed to know. I had an abyss of pain and tears inside me that as soon as I turned on that tap, as soon as I opened it, it could just flood out continuously. Continuously, I could have left it for hours before I closed that tap. And actually nothing had changed for 30 years almost. No, 20 years, Martin, get your maths right. Since I've been a 23-year-old student in Leeds University and a mind counsellor had asked me to tell her about my dad, the same thing had happened. I hadn't addressed it. And I realised that the reason why I'd been unable to escape from this black hole, the reason why my life had been absolutely average and a catalogue of underperformance 
was because I still had this five-year-old boy living inside me who was desperate for his dad to tell him that he loved him and a dad who was now physically dead who was also inside me telling me you're the world's worst so that was creating all the imposter syndrome all the self-fulfilling prophecies of failure they were all coming from that and i knew that somehow or other without the ability to time travel i was gonna have to go back to 1975 and i was gonna have to fix what was going on between me and my dad then oh that's such a strong story and you know we can tell by the the sentiment in your voice that it, it still you know, is a hard thing for you to talk about and it still has its effect on you even though you're looking back on it with a lot more experience a lot more knowledge and a lot more healing but the pain's still there uh, sometimes I'm not sure it's pain I, I see it more as a um, a learned deep-rooted flinch response mm -hmm. so um, you know, when I wrote the chapter about the resuscitation scene, for example, um, I had to read it out loud. I always proofread by reading out loud. I always write as a speaker and always have done. And that was, it was hard. It was hard to read, but I felt as though all that was happening was, and what's happened today, is when I talk about this, somewhere, somehow I have to go back and I have to put the record back on the, uh, you know, on on the, what you call, on the timetable. Mm -hmm. uh, and it means to some extent having to relive those feelings. It's, a, it's like a, a, a dent, a physical dent. It's like a, it's tears without pain, if that makes sense. Yeah, very much. I mean, it's like sometimes when we're looking back and we remember our first love and when that finished, you know, the whole world was ending. Nobody would ever love us again. But then years later, you look back on it and you can remember the uh, episode, but maybe even with a smile or some other sort of emotions. But it's not the acute pain or the, the, the strong emotions that were there when it actually happened. Yeah, um, definitely, definitely. And I can see how far I've come now when I look back in that way, because one thing that I could not cope with was rejection. I was the worst boyfriend in the world to, to, to end the relationship with. You know, I wasn't violent and I wasn't a stalker. So there was some sunshine on the horizon there. But, um, but, but now, when, and you know, when you when you look at what people are saying now about teach your sons this and teach your sons the other, which I'm all for, and I I you know I I try to bring up, um you know I've tried to bring up all my children to be a positive force in this world, but you know what, telling our children the best way of behaving, is only half the story, if we program them with feelings of inferiority, rejection, not being good enough. You know, it's it's on us. It almost goes with the territory to fail with a pair as a parent because nobody is perfect. There'll always be something that you could do better, but it is still on us as parents. And what I've realized writing my book, for example, because I've been spending a lot of time going back to the 70s and 80s is I keep on remembering the good things that my dad did. 
but but when you're a child you you know the bad things the things that impact you the things that make you feel like you're not good enough they go deep and they they're more dominant they're a more dominant force than the times when you're told that you're good being told you're not good it's it's almost as though it uh it's a critical thing that needs to be changed so i look i look i look back at my dad now and i can see him as a very loving man who did his best but he had a lot of failings I think once the seed's planted, whether it's the you're not good enough or uh, you can't sing or, you know, you're clumsy or, you know, whatever it is, once that seed's there, what we do is we find things to reinforce it. So, you know, maybe from your siblings and then from other people and different things come along and they reinforce that because we're looking for it. And once we look for something, we can find it. You're absolutely right. Um, You see, because the thing is, and I've... I've I've seen the um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like it's like a hangover from my childhood. I wouldn't say I have trust issues, but I certainly don't like the way most people behave when they're in a group. The way they're influenced, the way people jump on bandwagons, the way people will tend to be more hurtful or less thoughtful when they're in a group. I was highly resistant to that. Because one of the things that I remembered as a child, and this is going to come on to another thing that I learned in life, actually. One of the things I remembered as a child was that, for me, I was going to get it anyway. My, my dad ruled the whole house with an iron fist, right? And let's be straight about this. Parenting in the 1970s was not like parenting in 2021, you know? And I'm not just a boomer, I think that's what you call my generation, who's complaining about the fact that I had a 70s upbringing. Yes, my dad was more brutal, but the thing that hurt was was that he treated me significantly different than everybody else. I was going to get it whether I told the line or not. And I looked around me, and what I saw was five older brothers and sisters who were not doing anything to change the situation, and they couldn't do anything to defend me. They, you know, I remember one of my brothers, he's called John, 18 months older than me, very volatile he was as a youngster. He would get very frustrated with me sometimes, you know, one-to-one. Martin, why why do you answer him back? Don't answer him back. Why you, You're making it 10 times worse. Why'd you do it? But I just had this trigger inside me, Linda, right? Mm -hmm. It's just the way I am. I remember somebody sticking a gun to my face when I was 10. Um, An older boy, a 17-year-old. We were on what's known as the old cast iron shore. It got uh, renovated into a garden festival in the end. And he had this, this air rifle and he was pointing it in my face. And the way I saw it was for me to stay in that position, I was giving him control over whether I lived or died. Um, I'd have to be unlucky to get killed with an air rifle, but it was possible, particularly close range. But I didn't know that then. I was just a kid. That position was untenable for me. Action had to be taken. So I grabbed the barrel of the gun and we had a little bit of scuffle until it fired and then I ran off and I ended up telling my parents and they told the police. So I, I had this nature that would rather die fighting 
than um, you know allowing myself to be enslaved by anybody else. So I looked at my five older brothers and sisters, and you know they had a different life than me, and I I I you know I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna tolerate the injustice, which was the reason why I ended up fighting him back. I'll tell you that story very briefly. Um, I was about 12 years old, and as I say, I was I was in the best school in Liverpool. Really, that, that should have said something to my dad about what I was capable of. My mother used to go to my grandmother's house on Tuesdays, Thursdays, sometimes Fridays and Sundays. And these were trigger moments for me because when my mum went out, um, as I got older, that, that was when my dad was starting to focus his attention on me. Particularly because my older brothers and sisters, don't forget my eldest brother is seven years older than me. They were, they were leaving, they were, they were going to university. So my eldest brother had already gone to university um, when I was 12. I think my one of my sisters had gone down to London. Another one was just going to uni. So the house was becoming smaller. My younger sister was AWOL nearly every evening of the week because he didn't care about her, even though she was more vulnerable and she was out and about. She was not his focus of attention. I was. So in order to avoid any conflict on the Friday, I came home from school. I did all my homework there and then, so it was done. And then I went next door used to hang around the kid next door. We used to spend all, all evening playing Atari. Do you remember then, the Atari games? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. You know, and you'd think, wouldn't you? I mean, me as a parent, if my son was playing with the kid next door, indoors, with two parents in there, rather than out with the God knows who in Liverpool in the 1980s, it wasn't a great area that we lived. You'd think he would have been happy, but no, he wasn't. So it gets to Sunday. Don't get me wrong, by the way, I didn't stay there the entire weekend. But it gets to Sunday night. My mum's gone to my grandma's and it was about seven o'clock in the evening. And my dad knocked on the door. Um, you need to get in here and do your homework. You've got homework to do. You can hear my cat, by the way, meowing there in the background. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I'm like, here we go. There's, there's going to be trouble. So I've, I've gone into the house and he's going on and on and on. And, you know, I'm the world's worst. And, you know, why I'm, I'm trying to explain to him, I've already done all my homework on Friday. Until in the end, something just snapped at me. I turned around, I said, look, why are you doing this? What is your problem with me? Why? It's not my fault that you've been made redundant from Ford's. This was 1982. He'd been made redundant from the Ford's factory in Hillwood. Mm -hmm. Something I shouldn't have even been, you know, I shouldn't have been politicised as a 12-year-old, but that was the kind of world I lived in. I'm like, why? It's not my fault you've been made redundant. Why are you taking it out on me? And that was like a red rag to a bull. He came storming up the stairs after me, and I always had these flashbulb memories about this. I'd be running up the stairs. My dad was a big man. He used to be an army policeman. So he was a very, very stocky man. He'd been a fireman and an army policeman. So if I ever look a bit like I, I'm desperate for alpha male activities, that's where I get it from. You know, that's, <laughs> that's the kickboxer in me. And I'd turn around 
And I wouldn't see somebody who was coolly, calmly, collectively wanting to discipline me. I was looking at an animal. I was looking at somebody who had lost their mind, beat Ruth faced, plowing up the stairs as quickly as they could, you know, wanting to hit me. It wasn't unusual for me to be hit over the head with a cup. Although I wasn't being hit with the cup, I was being lashed out at while he had a cup in his hand. Mm -hmm. It's just a loss of control. So he's coming up the stairs for me and I go into my room and I, I stood at the place as far away from the door as possible. And he came in through the door. And I said, no, I'm not having this. And I ran at him. I ran at him. I, I wouldn't say I fought him, but I had to fight my way past him. I ran at him. I managed to get out of his grasp. I ran down the stairs. I ran out of that door. And I ran about a mile and a half to another friend's house, a guy called Barry Nugent, who's uh, gone now. He had cystic fibrosis. He was a lovely man. He died at 21. Ran to his house. And his dad used to work with my dad in Ford's. There's his name was, and it was as though he was expecting me. It was as though, he, you know, he was like, yeah, yeah, uh, I know what your dad's like. Yeah, he, he just get, yeah, look, do you want me to take you to, uh, to your grandma's house? So he gave me a lift in the car to my grandma's house, and that was the day when my mum turned around and said to my dad, um, you know, she would divorce him. But here's the thing, Linda, this is the lesson, the lesson in life. I call it the warrior's mindset. The reason why the gladiators were so extraordinary as fighters was because they didn't go into the ring to escape from death. They went into the arena to die with honour. Once you accept the fact that your time here on this earth is impermanent and you accept the fact that there is going to be suffering and you accept the fact that everything is uncertain. You, you free yourself from all the pointless emotion and flapping around of trying to resist the inevitable. So, you know, instead of drowning, you start to float with style and then you start to swim. So by surrendering, you're able to succeed. The same with the samurai. The samurai always accepted the fact that they were going to die in one of their battles. And as a result they fought more brightly than ever. And I knew that the alternative to not doing anything was just having a slow death. Martin was just having the life squeezed out of him by continuing to allow this man to treat me so unfairly. It just, it just wasn't going to happen, Linda. So it I was prepared to accept any consequence whatsoever. And it's an incredible story and I'm sure that we've got so much more because there's loads of other things we could talk about. But time always gets the better of us. So, Martin, you, know, you spoke about writing. So if you would just sort of sum in this up to say, you know, do you think it's a really good thing for people, whether they're looking at publishing or whether it's just writing, but actually getting some of the, the emotions and the concepts out from inside by writing it down? Do you think that's a good option? Um, I think so. Sometimes people need, as you know, you're a coach and, you know, I know that you've, you've helped people in enormous ways. Sometimes 
there's knowing the path and there's being able to do it. And a lot of the time when I deal with writers that I edit for or that I'm ghostwriting for, they know that they've got something that they need to let out. But they haven't really identified what the purpose is, what's in it for the reader. They haven't, they haven't distilled it. They don't know what the real juice is. But the starting block has just got to be getting it out there. Um, and I would say to anybody, it doesn't have to be sitting there with a pen and paper and saying, this is what's happened to me and this is how I feel. Although that's a good start. That would be fantastic if they can do that. It could be they might want to express themselves through dance. They might want to express themselves through songwriting, you know. But ultimately, if we don't express it, if we don't express what's going on inside, then we're, we've got a double life. There's a, there's a, a friction going on. There's a tension going on. And that's why my slogan is express your truth with clarity. I try to live my life as purposely as possible. I try to make sure that everything I do is something that I'm genuinely choosing to do because I want to do it because it gives me a sense of fulfillment. And as it happens, that passion, my main purpose here is to help other people to do the same. So if I'm ghostwriting or editing for somebody, I'm, I'm helping them to make their message more clear and help them understand their message more. Um, if I interview somebody on radio, as you know, I'm a radio presenter, mm -hmm. it's the same deal. I'm facilitating them getting their message out. And that's another thing. They might want to talk about it. If they don't want to write about it, maybe they should go and find a really good friend or even see a therapist and talk about it. But it's yeah. got to come out. That's a really good point. So, Martin, how do people get in touch with you if they want to? Well, I'm mostly active on LinkedIn. You can get me uh, just by going to LinkedIn, stick in the search um, Martin Morrison, or if you do LinkedIn.com, it'd be forward slash Martin J Morrison. Very active on there. You can contact me um, via email. Um, I've got an even more egotistical email address than Donald Trump, right? It's <laughs> martin at martinmorrison.me. How self-centered is that? <laughs> that? And that's because my website is martinmorrison.me. Um, so yeah, please contact me via LinkedIn. Um, you can co or contact me via email. And as you've said, Linda, I'm, I'm always happy to hear from somebody. I'm always happy to help. And even if somebody gets in touch and it's clear from the start it's not an inquiry as such i just i don't see things in a business way in that way if somebody has a business problem that i can solve like they've got budgets and they're writing a book great but if somebody has got a problem and they come to me for help the universe has put us together for a reason and I consider that an honor and I consider it valuable. So, you know, if you feel as though I can help you, whoever you are listening to this, then do get in touch with me. You'll always get a listening ear and you'll always get a response. Lovely. Thank you, Martin, so, so much. And I know uh, we can do a few more in this series because there's so much more to talk about. <laughs> Thank you, Linda. It's been a pleasure. I hope I didn't waffle too much. 
your stories are fantastic, so they're always great to listen to. Thank you so much, Martin. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. And the good thing about the podcast, as I always say, is you can listen to it as many times as you want to. You can pause it and get all those golden nuggets out. So if you need any other support or you want to get in touch, then uh, you can always drop us a line as well. But for meantime, until we're back with you next time, stay safe and be kind to yourself. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded in conjunction with the Chapel FM Art Centre and East Leeds FM radio station. For more information about them and all the good work that they do is www.elfm.co.uk. And to know more about what Linda Sage is doing, her website is www.lindasage.com. Also on all the other social medias.